Good morning, everybody. Can you hear me? Yes, yes, thumbs up. <laughs> um, I wish you could see it here that the um, windows closed behind us, but um, yesterday we got a, 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 about four or five inches of snow on top of all the leaves. It's quite dramatic and beautiful. And um, it felt like a, just another kind of statement of intensity at this moment. Um, it feels so, um, I keep thinking the word archetypal, it feels like an archetypal moment um, right now. I keep thinking of Game of Thrones. <laughs> The last season, the last couple of episodes, the 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 um, the, the preparing for the big battle, and um, this is such a archetypal theme of evil versus good, you know. And um, will we defeat the White Walkers? That there is an intensification. Um, and a recognition of things that have been um, operating, uh, and 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 um, and kind of building energy and momentum, all kinds of forces, you know. And along with this, there's also um, it's a full moon. It's a three-day full moon. It's a whole weekend full moon. It's the second full moon of the month, so it's a blue moon. And this second October moon is also called a uh, hunter's moon uh, because it's after the harvest. And when all the leaves are clear, well, the hunters can see uh, the uh, prey. And um, Greg was saying the other night, he, uh, the other day he was sitting downstairs and uh, teaching a class. And through the whole class, there were a whole family of turkeys <laughs> right outside our window, I think <coughs> trying to escape the snow. And we have all this deer roaming in the fields that the dogs want to go after in the morning. So um, I can really feel this, this um, seasonal uh, sense, archetypal sense of the season of harvest and the beginning of winter. Um, some indigenous peoples call this uh, moon the travel moon or the dying grass moon. And... Um, And, I, and it makes me want to remember and acknowledge that this uh, land that Ancestral Heart is on is, is not our land. It's the, it's the Lenape and the Mohegan lands. It's also a mini moon. So it's one of the smallest moons of the year. And um, it's a full moon that, that falls on Halloween. <laughs> which I didn't realize it was Halloween until about two days ago when I started getting haunted. And I'll tell you about that in a little while. And that um, Halloween falling on a full moon happens, I think, only every 20 years. So um, it's a really, uh, you could say, magical time. Um, and magical in the sense of both 
dark and light, you know. Um, so we are having a practice period that's focused on the idea of embodied refuge. And I'm uh, really deeply considering what does this mean? What does embodied refuge mean? And I think we'll be unpacking this um, throughout this, this the um, next month or so. And um, we are hearing a lot and talking a lot. And in Zen, we talk a lot about the body, dropping into the body, investigating the body, listening to the body, don't identify with the body, be a body. And then there's also this teaching from our spiritual ancestors that tell us that this body is not a solid permanent thing. It's a flow and an interconnected arising, momentary arising from many causes and conditions. So we um, practice a ceremony of Zazen, which is to sit down and be with what is and to watch our mind and to see if we can not get caught in the contents of our mind, which means then we would start to access and get in contact with the five aggregates, with the, with the way that we show up as a body. So we do this, and maybe even in the beginning, we think this is wonderful. I'm going to just drop self and drop into the body. Lovely. No. <laughs> Our body, our heart, our mind are not clear, relaxed, open spaces for most of us. So even though we have this understanding that there's no permanent solid self, there's also a nothing um, that uh, we can hang on to as ground that's unchanging. There's also this understanding that we have these Clashes, these permanent, uh, these persistent, not permanent, <laughs> persistent habit patterns. And what we call a self is really an arising of the, the body states, self states. And it is, uh, again, not a kind of peaceful uh, community in there. <laughs> There's often very different and changeable and competing facets of our, our body, mind, and heart arising. And um, Kosin has been talking in class Friday night about um, the idea of how wisdom arises from seeing and knowing as the, as the first two pieces. So I want to talk a little bit about how do we see and know and gain wisdom about these selves that appear before us? And how do they speak to us? How do we listen to language of the body and understand how the body is expressing self and expressing wisdom? So... In Westerns, there's so much to say about it. <laughs> I realize um, most of my training has been around this. 
And um, so I don't want to get too tangled up in the details, but I do want to share some things that have been helpful for me as I sit down on the Zazen cushion and try to understand why I can't settle and relax and find big mind. So in Western psychology, there's an understanding of this idea of self-states, that the mind and the body can, consists of different uh, relational cells, and um, that a self-state might arise, and it has a very particular kind of manifestation, a particular way of thinking, a particular way of feeling, a particular way of relating to others, it, it arises out of conditions, usually out of a relational field. And the idea is that um, to be kind of uh, healthy and alive and, and fluid, there needs to be an, an awareness and a flexibility of those states that, that they can kind of flow like, um, you know, they, they arise and they fall away. And they are um, able to be... Um, they don't, they don't get tenacious or sticky, you know, and that what happens is that um, when we have a lot of distress or we're suffering a lot, usually it's because we have, um, ha are having a problematic relationship with the self-state that's arising. So um, there's a term called an empathetic break. And um, what happens is um, we can shift into a self-state that has a relational trauma from the past. And it has its own effective truth, its own way of showing up, its own way of seeing everyone around them. And it's an empathetic break because we kind of lose contact with, with it. it. It moves into a, a kind of solidity um, that we then find it hard to work with. And... Um, there's another notion of disassociation. Philip Bromberg talks about this, that um, if there's some way that we can't be stable with a particular arising, a particular self-state, uh, we have a tendency to go to disassociated states. So we'll, we'll kind of find a place to retreat to or go to um, in order to manage. So... Um, Ian and uh, Jeffrey have been uh, starting us in a lovely conversation about Buddhist psychology, uh, which is a Yogacara teachings. And um, I've been looking at them for a while and I'm now studying um, uh, how they're presented in this wonderful book by Thich Nhat Hanh called Transformation at the Base. And um, so, so, so different different um, cultures, different um, theological perspective talks about it a little bit differently. And so in Yogacara, we talk about this idea of seeds, that there are these collective and individual seeds that manifest as body, mind, and speech. And that, in fact, our body and our mind and the world are manifestations of these seeds, that everything we see is a result of these, these, these arisings that happen deep, deep, deep um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a form of consciousness called storehouse consciousness. And what's um, really useful and interesting to me, and I think for the way that our Sangha explores karma, is this understanding that these seeds are both individual and collective. 
So Thich Nhat Hanh says that these seeds are the experiences, ideas, and perceptions of many people throughout space and time. That each cell of our body possesses all the characteristics, all the elements, all the experiences, all the joy, all the suffering of many generations of ancestors. And this isn't just an idea, it's a lived experience. He says, each joy and every sorrow of our mother and our father penetrates us as a seed that affects us and influences. Um, as Jeffrey was pointing out, it, it perfumes the way we feel and see in the world. That nothing that we receive through our senses is ever lost. It's there somewhere. And it, and it arises unbeknownst to us at a particular moments. And then there is um, an, um, a, a study that I and others in the Sangha have done called Indigenous Psychotherapy, started by a Matisse elder, Shirley Turcott. And she talks about these arisings, these traumas, these um, beings, as I like to think of them, as survival strategies of our ancestors. So fear or anxiety or um, anger or rage or joy. These are our, our blood memories. And we all have them. We all carry them. And if we can uh, open them up and, un and see and work with them, we can transform them. We can see what the wisdom is there for us, or we can let it go. So uh, in this psychotherapy, uh, she talks about uh, all ages are inside of us. <laughs> and I know you must feel this because I feel it in myself and I see it in everyone. You know that there, she talks about four ages that we can feel ourselves to be in any particular moment. It doesn't matter if we're two years old or, you know, 80 years old, that there's the child, the child being that arises. She calls that, she points to the East for the child and talks about it as spring and using um, imagery of animals. It's a mouse. <laughs> so the child is a mouse. And this is the feeling you have when you want to shrink down and get small in order to um, uh, manage something that might be too much. You know, we have so much distress right now in our lives, so much pain, so much unknown, that the child can really come out in the form of anxiety or fear or denial or wanting to just be fed. And then she speaks of the teenager, which is the South, the summer. She attributes it to the wolf, it's wolf energy. And this is an angry energy, a defiant energy, a strength there, a kind of a boundary setter, you know, an explorer. This teenager energy can really help us and be important when, to, when we want to say no, when we want to work for justice. You know, sometimes the teenager is really important. 
Then there's the adult, the west, the fall, the bear. And this is the place we are at, the being that arises in us that is the observer. You know, the one, this is the, the one we kind of build when we first sit down to Zazen. The one who can watch and be a little detached and see what's going on, right? The one who, you know, the parent who might have a child or a teenager raging inside them, but moves to the adult to take care of their own actual child who can um, stay calm and collected in a situation. And then the last is um, the elder or the ancestor, which is the north, the winter, the eagle. And this is one which she says, I love, is connected through time. It's this ancestral piece. And we all can inhabit the ancestral energy, whatever our age. It's a kind of that thing we talk about stepping back. Um, Greg was talking about last night, this like um, deeper wisdom in the body, the prajna that becomes embodied and almost shamanic. And this is, you know, when we move into a teacher position or a leader or advocate, grandmotherly mind. So um, we have ways in Buddhism and, um, and to speak to and work with this. And it's interesting to me because... Um, when I was thinking about this, like I said, I didn't think about Halloween, but there is this moment right now where I feel as if, you know, there has been throughout many cultures, this idea of, um, of a, a parting of a veil between the living and the dead. It's like a, a request to start to heal what's in the shadows and own it and work with it. Um, so we have, uh, there's a tradition in the, um, in China and Vietnam, and it's also in Taoism, which is this idea of hungry ghost. And we, we work with it here in Buddhism too. We, on Halloween around this time called Sagaki, we invite the hungry ghosts in. These are all those beings that kind of torment us, you know, that the shadow parts of our being, the anger, the rage, the fear, Um, the overeating, the addictive qualities. And as many of you know, the imagery is these hungry ghosts have these scrawny little necks and these huge bellies. And they're tormented because they can't feel satisfied. And in this understanding from these traditions it's said that they emerge, these hungry ghosts emerge from neglect or desertion of ancestors. So it, it emerges from something around our, um, our inheritance that is needing attention, healing. So the idea, you know, for me is um, we have to embody the shadow. We have to learn how to work with what we've exiled, what society has exiled, what has been put into what we say the dark. 
And when we sit down to Zazen, I think what happens is all of these beings, these energies come <laughs> to, to speak to us, you could say. And again, I think right now we have individual shadows and the shadows are both personal and collective. It's everything that's kind of outside of our consciousness, things that we say we refuse to acknowledge about ourselves. Uh, things we choose to remain ignorant about. For some, the shadow can also be positive, um, this, this insistence that we have to reject love or connection. And the more rejected, the more hidden, it becomes more dense and dangerous. And inside of it is a life force. So this is where the body comes in, because the body is the house of the shadow. It's a, if we can listen to how the shadow exerts itself in the body, we can begin to bring it in and begin to play with it, which to me has just been, um, which I am now finding to be really fun, <laughs> playful at times. So this is how the body speaks to us. If we want to take refuge in the body, we have to learn to listen to its language. So the body speaks in terms of sensations, in terms of images, memories, body postures, energetic fields, dreams, hauntings, and intuition. When I um, I'm about to give a Dharma talk, I usually have no idea what I want to say. Then I usually think I have nothing to say. And then something happens. And um, And I wanted to share with you, it feels very vulnerable to do this, really. I wanted to share with you how I came to want to talk about shadows today. So uh, last weekend, I went to a cabin in the woods that I've been going to for about 13, 14 years. And it's just a modest little wooden structure. There's mice living in the roofs <laughs> all night long. They're scurrying around. I have to go get water from a pump well. There's no electricity. I use a kerosene lantern. Um, I love this place. It's, it's, um, it used to scare, scare me so much to be in the dark alone in this cabin. And now I feel um, totally at home and totally at home with all the shadows and all the, all the uh, moments when I'm kind of just there with the, with the sounds and the mice and the darkness. And um, I was telling some folks that I really feel the ancestral energy there when I go. I feel it in the trees speaking to me. And I, I often go with a friend of mine who's in her 60s, and she's a wonderful healer, beautiful person. And um, I was telling some folks that we were sitting on the back porch. 
in rocking chairs with a kerosene lantern in the darkness, um, laughing and howling and crying um, for hours. And as I was sitting there, um, my friend, her name's Ellen, her face started to change. And I started to see all these different beings. And she said the same happened for her. So that weekend, I was reading Thich Nhat Hanh, and I started reading a piece about shadows. And I was reading actually Sebene's book, Sebene Selassie, our dear Dharma sister, called You Belong. And um, it's, it's a great book uh, also that speaks to shadow. And it's, um, it's what I love about Seb, and I, I love how she does it in this book, is she'll speak about something and she'll maybe critique it. Right. And then in parentheses, she'll say, yeah, and me too. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like she's like, OK, I got this, too, you know, and also that every part of us belongs. We have to uh, be intimate and make friends with um, all of these parts. So I was sitting in the Zendo the other night and um, I had gone through my normal torturous process about the talk and I was having a lot of fear and anxiety. And all of a sudden I was sitting there and I was looking at everybody with black robes on. And I just started thinking about witches and I hadn't remembered about Halloween. And um, And some of us have been uh, some of us have been reading this book called Caliban and the Witch, um, and it's all about witch hunts. So, talk about a collective shadow. Um, So for over 200 years in Europe, they don't know how many people, they don't know how many, mostly women, maybe 80% women, but um, hundreds of that 50 to 60,000 women were tried, tortured, burned alive, or hanged. So they don't know the numbers could be higher, the numbers can be lower. Um, I bet they're higher. And um, in this book, uh, Silvia Federici speaks about how um, that these women subjects had to be destroyed in order for capitalism to come to be and to be able to uh, begin its systemic exploitation. And who they destroyed, the women that they destroyed, they were the healers. They were the heretics, she says. They were the disobedient wife. They were the women who dared to live alone. Most of those accused and tortured and murdered were poor and elderly. Many were midwives. Most were menopausal or postmenopausal. 
So I name this because those seeds are here and they show up. And and they um they need to be recognized. You know, when I was growing up, you know, when I was a very little girl, my grandmother had made me a uh, witch's costume, made me and my sisters, all three of us. I love these costumes. I couldn't, I didn't want to take them off. I wanted to wear them all year round. They were so, they just felt good to be in. And then when I was a little kid, this is what, this is the kind of training I had around patriarchy. You know, I used to watch the TV show Bewitched. And it was a horrible TV show because um, the whole point of the TV show is that um, Samantha, to help support her husband so he's not threatened, does not use any of her powers. (laughs) It was, oh, the only saving grace was Endora, is that the, is uh, her her mother who refused this and would would, um, undermine Dagwood or whatever, whatever the husband at every at every move. Um, so this this you know it's very interesting for me to look at you know my generation's training around patriarchy and I love living with people of different ages and and because the training is not necessarily always the same but it's there in different forms. So what happens to our ancestral, what happens with those seeds, you know, and what do we do to survive? And how does, if we don't look at it, face it and feel it, how does it get twisted? So I've been thinking a lot about what it is to be a a woman, a European woman, with European roots, so a white woman, because this uh, attempted, you, some call it genocide, some don't, some call it, uh, you know, just a, an era of te- terrorism. How happens when um, a body gets traumatized like that and what's the moves that you make? And so I think a lot about uh, rage and what has to happen in order to survive and rage goes underground. And then it also, how when we're traumatized, we can then become the oppressor. So the oppressed becomes the oppressor, tries to gain power through dominance or through obedience, you know, all sorts of things. So... um, So this energy came into the Zendo and I went from feeling like a mouse going off to be slaughtered, as I usually do before a talk, (laughs) to feeling this sense of power that was not a like a power over, but I just began to see our Zen practice in this and all of the monks sitting there in black robes. And I thought, wow, you know, Buddhism and our practice, our Zen practice is shamanic. We're learning how to work with these energies and turn them into something else, turn them wholesome, make, have them be a force for good. 
but not to exile or push underground. This is the shadow of Zen. If we just acted out in a patriarchal way or in, or in a dominant way, what we do is we start to split. We think we need to be good. We have to get rid of the bad, right? This is the spiritual shadow. But in actuality, the practice is to invite and welcome and feed the hungry ghosts and learn how, what they need, what the medicine is, what the energy is that they're trying to offer us. So something happened in my body and I've been just, um, even though the world is on fire and there's so much to be afraid of, I feel somehow connected to uh, a source of, of resilience. So um, yesterday, I, 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 I was just letting my body go where it needed to go, find what it needed to find. This is how I do talks. And so they're a little torturous, you know. So I spent three hours reading Ruth King's book about rage. I was so enthralled with it. I didn't want to put it down. And I, I thought, how am I going to talk to her? <laughs> I have to give a Dharma talk, not a talk on, on rage, but it is the Dharma. So Ruth King has an amazing book about uh, how, the, how rage gets disguised in all these forms. And she addresses it particularly for uh, female-bodied folks, for people who grew up uh, um, being seen as a woman. So she says... Um, I long to live wide open, liberated from all forms of oppression, especially those that were self-imposed. I began to acknowledge that dancing with the heat of rage, my own and others, was not only my nature, but also my service. Since then, I've realized a deeper awareness of rage and its wisdom. So rage can have these qualities of, um, that are distorted. And she names six of them. I won't go into it. Um, uh, let's see, what are they? Um, dominance, defiance, distraction, dependence, devotion. And um, dominance, defiance, distraction, dependence, devotion. And there's one other one. And she says there's two sides. There's rage and there's shame. So... I feel like part of um, our healing of collective trauma is to take responsibility for our rage, the rage that lives, I think, inside of all of us. It is, we are in a rageful moment in our world right now. And uh, if we don't take responsibility for it, it comes out in these twisted, confused torturous forms in our bodies and in our relationships. She says, unresolved rage has been passed on from one generation to the next, contributing to rage inheritances that collectively plague the world. And each of us, whether we know it or not, is charged with transforming this legacy. So... There's so much to say about how to work with it. Um, you know, uh, the first thing we have to do, I, 
which is why I think Zazen is so critical or some other practice of stillness and, and being with is that we have to, as Joan Sutherland says, create a, a psychic container big enough for these energies because they will overwhelm us. And we have, we have to pull out the medicine, the, the, the wisdom that's within that. So one of the ways we do this, which is um, embodied every month in a full moon ceremony, we weren't able to do it this time, is the precepts that we bring the, we name the karma, we avow it. But I want to say avowing it, I really want to emphasize when we avow something, it's not rejecting it. It's not saying it's a failure. And then we bring the precepts to it and we sit and we learn how to play with it. And with shadows, we learn what we project on others and how to take that back. There's something um, Ruth King talks about. It's a Jungian strategy called um, Percept. So if, it's, if there's something that is really annoying you or bothering you about somebody else, see how you can take that up and take it on as some shadow part of you. Look, what we're doing politically right now is insane. We are completely putting the shadow on the other. And I say this with a great sensitivity that I believe, you know, I believe um, uh, we all have work to do. And I do believe that there's actually things that need to be named and owned that are, that are, um, and, and, and um, spoken to. But this is a practice of healing duality of this binary way that we tend to work around life and start to see if we can soften and change our perceptions, um, change the way energetically we navigate certain um, parts of this, these energetic fields that arise within us and between us. We can do all kinds of work where we open up to these energies and we say, you know, whose body is here right now? Is it my mother's body? Is it my ancestor's body? Is it a five-year-old body? You can tell by the voice, by the sensations, by the posture. What is it speaking to me right now? What is it saying? So this deep listening, this intimacy, this seeing and knowing. What animal am I embodying right now? So we, we sit zazen, we breathe, but we also, um, I think the shadow needs lots of space. So we move and we chant and we hum. Ruth King says, rage is a song I've always sang, just never out loud. <laughs> and for me, as, as somebody um, who has been deeply trained um, to not be allowed to have my rage or have my anger for many reasons. I want to own that and give it space so it doesn't get twisted into dominance over others. I want to play with it and have fun with it, you know? Um, When I hear students um, 
come and they speak about some part of them that they're seeing, you know, like some kind of like mischievous part and they have a big smile on their face, you know, it's wonderful. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to move into shame. We don't have to reject. And these, um, these energies are teaching us something. So for example, you know, I've been thinking a lot about failure and feeling failure a lot. I feel like I fail all the time, you know, and I don't mind now because inside of failure is this great, um, wonderful gift of humility, <laughs> of, of relaxing some idea I had about needing to be something. So, uh, these, if we open to these energies, we, we can find our ancestral embodiment. I really believe that, that, um, that evening in Zazen, I was asked to actually speak about this. My training, you know, and especially to speak about the um, complications of uh, for me, of uh, gender and race. And I believe my ancestors of all sorts, probably like many of our ancestors, if they spoke, they were killed. You know, if they named things, they, they might have been put themselves in danger. But now we're in a moment where um, so many people are finding their voice so many people who have not been listened to are demanding to be heard. And we can continue to offer, um, there's so many practices in Zen and, and in Buddhism that offer an energetic field for us to do that. Rituals are another amazing um, ceremonial form to help hold archetypal energies. Learning how to have brave conversations with each other in Sangha is a way to um, discern and get clear about what are the energies operating here and what am I having the shadow that I am, in, I am expressing all over the place, you know, but I'm not taking responsibility for. Having lots of... Um, patience and generosity and then taking refuge in um, Mother Earth. So, you know, let's see, I'm going to try to practice through this election period and everything that will follow to see what I'm doing around these uh, really strong ideas I have about bad and good, right and wrong. How can I feel the complexity um, and see if I can step below that, move into a kind of an ancestral elder position that can see things from this wider vision, from this deeper prajna. And what's skillful, you know, what might be the skillful thing if we really want 
peace, if we really want justice, if we really want to um, include everyone in our heart. My, my puny little, you know, brain and <laughs> body, you know, needs, um, needs, needs to know it's so much wider than that, that it can include everything. So the way we, 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 can, we can rest in that big mind and that big heart is by healing those things that we exile. That's the beginning of it. And then we gain energy and we gain creativity and we gain playfulness and we gain a capacity to be resilient. Um, so, okay, thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.